Right, well, uh, as you heard Steph just reading that out, your mind might have been spinning a little bit. And the reason is because Paul has a little bit of a, a habit of circling back and hitting topics that he's already hit. And he also talks in really long sentences. And so sometimes when you're kind of reading through sections of text like this, in fact, chapter three of Galatians is probably the most dense sort of bit because he's talking about the law and he's talking about covenants and and he's also talking in a context and in a particular issue that was 2,000 years ago from now. And actually what you heard read out there is he's actually throwing back to 2,000 years before him. And so it's like 4,000 years ago and it's in a particular people group and, and it's actually following a, a kind of history, a biblical history of how uh, God progressed salvation history in order to make a theological point and in order to particularly talk about the nature of salvation. And so as you're reading that, your head might be spinning, and that's okay. We're going to go through it, and hopefully by the end, some parts of this make sense. And if not, you can go home and read it for yourself and talk about it amongst, uh, amongst yourself. But let me start with two really basic questions. We'll start really simple. Uh, two questions that evangelists have used uh, over many years that has been effective in, in uh, calling people to see their need for the gospel. Uh, the first question is one that you know really well. If you died tonight, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? And so that's a question that many people have been confronted by. And then the, the follow-up question to that is, if you arrived uh, in heaven, why do you think God would accept you? Why do you think he'd accept you? Now, I think we're pretty uh, used to what the common answer to this is. Well, I think he would accept me because I'm a pretty good person. Like I haven't done anything too wrong and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. And so I went into Google Images to actually look up what does a good, look, good person look like? Not a good looking person. What does a good person look like? And I came across this article from Reader's Digest, uh, kind of the idea that you have kind of this evil guy on one shoulder, you have this you know, angel on the other, and you've got to listen to the angel more than you listen to the bad guy, and that's how uh, you are a good person or not. And this scientist uh, wrote, chucked up a few scenarios. He said, imagine this, two people, an off-duty firefighter and a senior citizen using a cane are walking down the street, and all of a sudden, they come across a house on fire. Someone sticks their head out of the second, second floor window and yells, help me, help. Well, the two passers-by are facing the same problem. They will most likely arrive at two different equally moral decisions. In this situation, the scientist says, it seems to me that the right thing for the firefighter to do would be to go in there and, and offer help, and the right thing for the person, the older person carrying the cane, would be to call triple zero. And so, uh, you know, so equally moral but different decisions in that particular um, moment. Now, he says, most of us don't come across burning houses on a regular basis. However, we do face other kinds of moral decisions, like should we sneak our nine-year-old kid into the zoo for free, even though only under eights are free? But he looks under eight. So do you sneak him in? Is that okay? Or something a bit more sinister, if your sister is having an affair, do you tell your brother-in-law? It's your sister, do you tell your brother-in-law? And he said that the answers that you give to those kind of questions determine whether you're a good person or not. We all tend to, as we're faced with this, why would God accept me? We tend to make this internal self-assessment 
And we seem to sort of be favourable to ourselves. We hold our other people at much like stricter account. But to ourselves, we think, yeah, no, I'm a pretty good person. I think I would be okay. Now, when you come into chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul actually says that this line of thinking is not compatible with Christianity. So for Paul, this kind of thinking that I'm a good person and that makes me right with God and would like, enable me to be with him for eternity is like a square peg in a round hole. It's not compatible. It, it's, it's a different kind of thinking. But often, this is what we think. In fact, to be Christian, like to be Christian in our time is to be good. And so those two things are so like held together. But for, for Paul, they're incompatible. Now, I want to explain this in three parts. The first thing that Paul does to actually unpick this kind of thinking is he contrasts the law or works according to the law with faith in God's promise. So he contrasts those two things. Now, firstly, what is the law? When Paul is talking about the law, what is he talking about? The, the law is God's good, holy, and righteous standard that reflects the beauty of who he is. It is his good his holy, his righteous standard, his glory on display that reflects the beauty of who he is. Now, part of that law, for example, is something you're familiar with, the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses, uh, to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Let's just have a look at the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honour your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet. Now, this is pretty lofty standard, but can you imagine a world where everyone actually abided by these laws? Where people didn't make idols out of money, out of power, out of sex, where People actually had respect and they worshipped the one true God, where everybody always honoured their mother and father. Can you imagine a world like that, where no one in the world murdered anybody, where no one committed adultery and everyone was faithful? Can you imagine a world where no one stole every, anything? Can you imagine a world where no one lied? Can you imagine a world where no one was jealous of their neighbour? Well, this law reflects the beauty of who God is. He is glorious. He is beautiful in all his ways. And so the law reflects the very nature and heart of who God is. Now, but when Paul goes to talk about the law, he says something quite striking. He says, for all who rely, very important word, for all who rely, it's like the make the foundation of your life. I lean on it. Whoever leans on this, on the works of the law are under a curse. If you rely on works according to the law, your own moral effort, you're under a curse. For it is written, and this is why, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so what is the curse of the law? How does the law become a curse to you? It becomes a curse to you when you seek to establish your righteousness, your standing with God according to the law. Why? Because the law demands perfection. That's the very nature of law of a law. You can't half observe a law. You have a law, it's like a line, it's like a, uh, a red light, and you can't, if you go over that line, what have you done? If you've broken the law, if you don't go over that, that white line, 
then you haven't broken the law. But the Bible says that all of us have actually broken God's law. Have a look at the Ten Commandments again. Have you ever worshipped or loved something more than you have God? Have you made idols out of money, sex and power? Have you uh, not shown reverence for God in some way, not respecting him or cursed using his name? Have you uh, failed to honour your mother and father and treated them poorly? Have you ever murdered anyone? You don't have to... (laughs) Okay. When Jesus comes, he actually ups the ante on the law and says, even if you've hated your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Adultery. Even if you've looked upon a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery with her. Have you ever stolen? Have you ever lied? Have you ever been jealous? You see, the problem with the law is that all of us are under its curse if we try to set up our righteousness next to the law. None of us can stand. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And this is why Paul says, to establish your righteousness, to say God would accept me because I'm a pretty good person, that's a square peg in a round hole. It does not fit with the message of Christianity. And so Paul goes on to say, it's evident that no one is justified by God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This, this quote in red, there is a quote from the prophet Habakkuk. And the law had already been in, uh, in, in play for generations. But even Habakkuk, in the midst of the administration of the law, knew that the law never justified anyone. It doesn't have the power to do that. All it does is show you how sinful you really are. And so what Habakkuk saw is that the righteous would only ever be made righteous before God through faith. It was always by faith. He says, but the law is not of faith. It's different to faith. In fact, the one who does them shall live by them. If you set the law up as your standard of righteousness, then you have to live by that standard. And that's a heavy burden that no person who's ever lived has ever been able to bear. But this is the good news. The good news is this. Christ, he says, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, what he's referring to there is a passage in Deuteronomy, that when a person was executed in that time because they had broken the law, they would be executed and then they would be hung on a tree. And everyone will be able to see that person's shame, that they are under the curse of the law. They have broken the law. Now, what Paul is saying is that when Jesus came, Jesus is like the man who became a curse for us. Now, hear me on this. He was declared legally to be a sinner. Jesus was declared legally to be a sinner, not actually a sinner. Jesus never sinned. But he was legally considered to be a a sinner so that he could bear the curse for us. This is, again, the doctrine of substitution. Jesus stands in our unholy law-breaking place as if he never fulfilled the law perfectly and takes the curse upon himself. This is the glory, the beauty, the freeing nature of the cross, that it's all about what he has done for us. And this is why, that, so that Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's all the families of the earth. 
How is it going to come? How is the, the promise made to Abraham going to come to all the families of the earth? It was going to come through Christ Jesus so that we might receive the promised spirit through what? Through the law? No, through faith. The righteous are going to live by faith. The righteous are going to stand before God by faith, not relying on the foundation of the law because who can stand? And so the contrast is this. Relying on the law condemns you, but relying on Jesus justifies you. And this is why it's a square peg in a round hole. No one can stand before God in their own moral righteousness. Now, the problem is for Christians, the problem is, is the 50% Christian, is that we do believe in the grace of God, but we also believe that 50% of it is us. And this causes all kinds of problems, shame, fear when we get it wrong, pride and arrogance when we get it right. And we kind of live our life in this 50% kind of me, 50% kind of God. But actually the gospel is it's 100% grace. 100% what God has done for you, not what you have done for God. And what that means is, and what that should produce in us is this, this, this people who are dying to themselves daily, who are living more of their life in thanksgiving, who, who, who are shedding off arrogance and pride because all of it is about what he has done. It should grow our hearts with awe for what, what he has done. Now, the objection comes. Paul makes his point. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, there's a very clever theological kind of objection that the Judaizers, these false teachers in Galatia, make. But hang on, didn't the law of Moses change the promise? Now, here's where you have to know a little bit about the history. What came first? The promise was made to Abraham, and then about four or 500 years later, there was a covenant made with Moses and the people of Israel, which was the giving of the law. And so what is their argument is like, when the law came, wasn't that like an update to the promise and it actually changed the promise? Almost like, well, God sort of saw that the promise that he'd made through the promised seed that Jesus would come from Abraham's line, that wasn't really going to work. And so what he needed to do is actually say, well, no, that's not going to work in order to justify you. I've changed my mind. And so now you have to obey the law of Moses in order to be justified by me. And so this is what they're saying. The Judaizers are saying it's 50% God, God's promise, but it's 50% us too. And it's 50% observing the law that makes you right with God. Well, Paul then, the second thing he does is he confirms that the promise still stands and it's unaffected by the law. He says, let me give you a human example. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or cancels it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And so it's the example of a human will. When somebody signs a will and they uh, you know, say who they're leaving their possessions to and all that sort of stuff, the day that person dies, the very next day, you can't change the will. The will is exactly what was signed and what was said. And so Paul is basically saying, when God made the promise to Abraham, when the law came, it didn't change the promise. The promise is, is intact. And so he says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. You can't have both. You can't have 50% promise and 50% works of the law. 
because that is going to nullify that. It's either promise or it's nothing. And so this is what he's saying. God gave it to Abraham by a promise. It's 100% grace. And if you actually go back to Genesis 15 and look at how the covenant was made with Abraham, that there would be this promise come from his line and it would be Jesus. If you have a, have a look at it, it's, it's startling how the covenant was made. God tells Abraham to go and get a whole bunch of animals, cut them in half and create a line like this. So there's one half of the animal there, one half of the animal there. In fact, this is how they made covenants in that time because it was graphic. It was a graphic picture. Like if you break it, if you break the covenant, you're going to end up like that sort of thing. It's this very graphic kind of blood spilling kind of thing that they would do. Well, usually what would happen is the two sides of the covenant would actually walk together through this kind of, you know, um, these kind of animals that were laid there, they would walk through together and at the end that showed that they were both parties to that covenant equally. But actually when you look in Genesis 15, how it happens, how it happens is quite startling because Abraham falls into a deep sleep on the ground and there's this burning fire pot that goes through the two, the two lines and goes through by itself. Now what is being communicated here? This is a covenant all right, but it depends nothing on Abraham. He's asleep. It depends all on God. God goes through and he says, you know what? This covenant is not dependent on you, Abraham. This is dependent on me. And there's nothing that can unpick this. This should be comforting to you, Christian. If you've believed in Jesus by faith, you get that picture of God going through that covenant by himself and recognise that all of this is dependent on his faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to him. This should totally change your whole life. It's 100% grace. It's what he has done for us. Well, the second objection, which may have also come up in your mind too, is what's the point of the law then? If everything is dependent on, on God to deliver the promise and it's not to do with observing the law, what's the point of the law? Why did God give the law? It's a good question. Well, Paul now clarifies the role of the law, and he says that the law was put in place as a temporary measure. It was a temporary measure. It was like a custodian. It was a guardian. It was something that kept the people of Israel until the promised seed was to come about through history. So have a look at this. Why then the law, he says, it was added because of transgressions to show sin up for what it is, until the offspring should come to whom the promise have been made. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, that could actually save you, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, all the commands of scripture, have actually imprisoned everything under sin. So it's actually shown up everything is sin. When you look at all the commands of the scripture, you see, man, I can't live up to anything of this. I can't ever fulfill any of this perfectly. This is what the scripture does. It places this, we don't have to look at the scripture this way, but it is actually this way. All the commands of scripture actually show and reveal to you that you can't do it. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I think, I think I'm saying the same thing over and over again at the moment. I'm just hoping you're starting to get it. So nod, nod if you're getting it. <laughs> All those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. It served as like this custodian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
And so it was a temporary measure, but it was also, what was it temporary for? What was it guarding for? Well, it was, it was also a training measure. You see, the law served as like a mirror. When you look in the mirror, you see yourself. You see all your flaws. You see everything that's kind of like wrong with you when you look in the mirror. This is what the law does. You look into the law, look into the Ten Commandments, you let those things stare back at you, and what does it do? It reveals the sinfulness of sin. It reveals how horrifying it is to have a holy, perfect, and pure God and to try and stand in his presence in your own moral law-keeping. And so this is what it does. Second thing is actually restrains the damage of evil. It's kind of like a curb, like a car, like a curb is in place so that the car doesn't run up on the sidewalk and hit somebody. And this is, so a curb is, is kind of in place to actually restrain evil. And you actually see this in life. If you actually do observe the laws of God, you're going to experience less mess in your life. If you decide to break more of those laws, you're going to experience more of that mess in your life. There's a principle of the Bible that you reap what you sow. If you sow to breaking the law, if you sow to sin, you are going to reap the natural consequences of that. And so the law actually does serve as a curb to keep you on the straight and narrow, but it cannot save you. It cannot save you. All it can do is serve as a third thing. It's a mirror, it's a curb. It can serve as a guide, and it actually guides you to your deep need of the Lord Jesus Christ. This week, my, uh, this light showed up on my car, and this light that shows up on your dashboard is not cool because it means you need to check your engine. Now, when this light comes on, it doesn't automatically start fixing the problem that's in my car. That light tells me that I need to go to the mechanic to get it fixed. It drives me to the, to the mechanic. It drives me to the solution. That's what the law does. The law actually tells you that there's a problem, tells you that there's something wrong, and causes you to drive to the mechanic, to drive you to Jesus for the solution. The, the law can reveal that you have wounds, but it cannot administer first aid to you. All it does is reveal the wound. You've got to go somewhere else if you want first aid. You've got to go to Christ. And so what role does the, the law play in the Christian life? Well, hear this, church, and this is good news. You're not under the curse of the law. You're not under the law at all. You're in Christ. You're experiencing the freedom of Christ who became the curse for us. But the law can still play a very important and helpful role in your life. It can serve as a mirror. Read the Old Testament. Read, go, go home and read the Ten Commandments. Read them and let God's holy standards sink into your heart to reveal the sinfulness of your sin. Use it as a curb. Don't give in to the mess of sin because it's going to cause, wreak havoc in your life. But thirdly, see it as a guide because after all these things, let, after all these things, you need to run to Jesus. You know, in churches today, it's very, very common to just preach messages that make people uh, leave feeling warm and fuzzy. It's a very, very common thing to do. And the reason is, is because, you know, we just basically just want people to come back the next week and we just want a, a community and all this sort of stuff. But do you know what? Church, the law has to crush us sometimes. The law has to crush us to make us see, you know what, God is holy and that his, 
sacrifice on the tree for us cost him dearly the shedding of his blood, the second person of the Trinity, the divine eternal son of God who comes in our place. It cost him everything. Sometimes the law has to crush us, but then immediately it drives us to grace. And that's how you change. That's how God works in your life in power. That's how you go from living this kind of 50% Christianity. It's 50% all the time. It's just medium. And it's just about buzzing my feelings to actually experiencing the power. One of the most common things I hear from people is like, I want to experience God's power. How do I experience God's power? Oh man, let the law crush you. See how holy God is and then run to grace. Run to the Lord Jesus. Claim his forgiveness. Experience his freedom. Walk in that newness of life. This is the gospel. Andrew Duke says, Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law. God gave the law to prove us sinners and to make us run to him. You know, back to our question, if you went to heaven, why do you think God would accept you? Why, it doesn't make sense to say oh, it would be because I'm good. There's something about me that's good. How do you come to Christ? How do you truly come to Christ? All you need is need. And all you must have is nothing. And what do I mean by that? All you need is need. All you need to see is, you know what, I fall far short of God's standard. I cannot stand. I have need of Christ. And all you must have is nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. There's nothing that can commend me to you. No works of righteousness, no nothing. All I, all I have is empty hands. I need you to come. The problem with this, it sounds so simple. All I need is need. All I have is nothing. You know what? Most people don't have this. Most people don't have either of these things. They don't have need. Oh, I'm fine. It's fine. Yeah. Most people don't have nothing in their hands. They still think there's something that commends them. Matthew, Jesus says this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Few. You see, few, only few recognize that they have need and only few bring nothing to God and allow him to administer his 100% grace through his son. Let's bow our heads this morning because if there's any of you this, this morning that as you think about your own life, if that question, as that question comes to you, if you were to die tonight, why would God accept you? The only answer that can be there in your heart and life this morning is not because I'm a good person, but because Jesus Christ has removed the curse of the law for me and I stand in his grace, 100% grace. And so you can actually receive that gift of salvation this morning by coming to God and simply saying, Lord, I no longer want to trust in myself. I want to put my trust and my reliance in the work of Jesus. And if you want to do that this morning, it's a decision of your heart right now. If the Spirit is moving in your heart and life right now and causing you to see, you know what, this is true. I need this. I need Jesus. Then speak to him now and respond to him and say, Lord, save me. Save me from my sin. Save me from the curse of the law. Thank you for dying in my place, forgiving me of my sin. Right now, if you want to do that, I, I can't say how important this is right now to make sure right now that you are right with God.